Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining me for my second Gresham College lecture on the psychology of finance. So what we're going to look at today is hidden investment opportunities. So these are opportunities that the stock market misses. So this will hopefully be a practical lecture, looking at some information which is relevant for the valuations of companies, but is mispriced by the stock market. And this follows on from last time's lecture, which was on the psychology of finance. So what we looked at last time was that the stock market is not driven by fundamentals and rationality, it's driven by emotion. So people overreact to certain bits of information, and they underreact to other bits of information. And while you might think that was interesting, you might think it's also a bit confusing. Because last time, if we say that the stock market overreacts to some things, but underreacts to other things, then, well, how do we know what it's overreacting to or underreacting to? If there's a particular piece of information, how do we know there'll be an overreaction or an underreaction? But what we're going to look at today is the fact that both overreaction and underreaction have the same common source. And actually, that common source is underreaction. So paradoxically, underreaction is the cause of overreaction. Well, how can that be? Well, let me give you an example. So there's two different bits of information that you can have. Right? There's what I call salient information, which is very easily observable information, and non-salient information, which is information which is difficult to observe. So let's say a salient information is how much profit a company has made at the end of the year. Something which is non-salient is how well the employees are being treated or corporate culture. Now, if indeed the market underreacts to non-salient information, like corporate culture, because it's really hard for outside investors to assess how nice it is to work for a company, then in fact it might overreact to salient information such as profits. Because one way that you can increase profits is just by spending less money on your employees, not just in terms of wages, but in terms of training and working conditions. And if indeed you have the case in which companies can reduce working conditions to increase profits, then if investors underreact to working conditions because they find it really hard to assess that, then they're overreacting to profits. They get overly excited about a company's profits, even if those profits were boosted not due to excellent reasons such as productivity, but due to underinvesting in your work. And so that's going to be the theme that we're going to look at today, is it's going to be both overreaction and underreaction, but with a common source, we're going to look at the market overreacting to salient, noticeable information and underreacting to difficult-to-understand information. And so let me now take you to some one of the, the most important studies in this field, which is what's called the accrual anomaly. Well, I think a good place to start is to explain what I mean by an accrual. I'm sorry for those of you who already know this, so I'd like to get just everybody on the same page. And like with most things, it's best explained not with theory or equations, but with an example. So let's say you're a lawyer, and you've done one hour of work for your clients for £200. So, very affordable lawyer. Right? But you don't bill your client for every single hour worked, right? You'd be spending all your time sending invoices. So maybe you'll bill your client after you've worked for 50 hours. So, after you've done one hour of work, you're not receiving anything, 
because you've not, you're not going to build them until the end of 50 hours. But you've still earned some money, right? Because even though you haven't received cash, you've still earned 200 pounds because you've done the work, you're going to be paid for it at some point in the future. So your profit is greater than zero. However, the profit might not be as high as 200 pounds. Why? Well, you've earned 200 pounds, but sometimes clients will push back and they might not pay the lawyer her entire bill because they might say, well, she did some work which was not actually strictly necessary. And unfortunately, as, as we see in the pandemic, sometimes clients go bankrupt and they might not be able to pay the bill. So there is actually quite a lot of discretion as to how much to record on her profit and loss account as how much profit she's made. Maybe she could claim, I've made 200 pounds of profit, I've done the work. Or maybe it's only 150, because, well, maybe there's the possibility that the client actually doesn't pay me. But what this discretion means is that there are ways of increasing your reported profits due to changing the assumptions on how you account for them. And so what an accrual is, is when you are claiming that you've made profits without actually having received cash. This is related to another concept, which is depreciation. So what's the idea of depreciation? Well, that's rather than on the income side, that's on the cost side. So you might be a, a taxi company, and maybe I've earned £5,000 this year because I've ferried people around in my taxi. How much does the taxi cost me? Well, if I bought the taxi last year, it doesn't actually cost me anything this year. Why? Because I already have the taxi, and therefore I'm not spending any money. However, right at the start of the year, I had a pretty new taxi, and then by the end of the year, it gets a bit worn and dilapidated, and it's not worth as much. And that's something which is known as depreciation. That's the idea that if you have an asset, it goes down in value over time. But again, right, there's a lot of assumptions that we can make. Right? How much does the value of the taxi go down every year? Right? One approach might be to say, well, maybe my taxi, I can last for five years. £5,000 a year. Every year, the taxi goes down in value by 1000 But if you wanted to boost your profit, you might say, no, I think the taxi could last 10 years. And if it lasts for 10 years at £5,000, then maybe it's only £500 is how much you're losing every single year. And also, you might think, well, maybe the taxi doesn't lose the same amount of value every single year, but it changes over time, right? As soon as you've driven a car out of the um, car dealer, it immediately goes down in value by a huge amount because it turns from being a new car to a used car. So it's not that it goes down at the same rate. Maybe it drops a lot in the first year and then smooths out. But what this also highlights is, again, we have a lot of discretion as to how much profit we're making and how much costs we're incurring based on the assumptions that we are using. And so what we have here is cash is what we're actually receiving and profits is what we're claiming to receive because profits contain both accruals and depreciation. Now, the fact that a company is 
including accruals and depreciation, doesn't mean they're cheating, right? If you have indeed done work as a lawyer and not been paid, you have made profit. But all this is saying that sometimes you could manipulate the accruals in order to claim profit when you haven't actually earned anything. And this is the subject to a really famous study on the topic of today, which is hidden investment opportunities. So what Richard Sloan looked at is companies that announce their earnings every year. Now, when a company announces the earnings, right, we know that the company made £100 million, but they don't really announce how much of that £100 million was due to cash, right, hard, unambiguous profit, and how much was due to accruals, which is the claim to profit. And because when we see, we read the newspaper, it only tells us about the total of 100, that is really salient. Now, it's indeed true that if you wanted to, you could delve into the annual report and the profit and loss statement and look at how much of that was accruals, but many people don't have time to do that. It's not as salient. So this means that people overreact to companies with high profits if those profits are due to accruals. And so what the study found was that companies that had high profits due to accruals, the future stock returns were negative. And the interpretation here is that at least some of the profits that they were claiming were not true profits, but were profits that they were claiming to have due to changing the accounting assumptions. And then even more interestingly, what they then did is they looked at, well, what, what just Sloan did was he looked at, well, when did those future stock returns manifest? And he found that it was at the future earnings announcements. So why might this be? So let's say you've generated profits through earning cash, through selling goods. That is pretty likely to be recurring. Right, so if I have customers, they're probably going to pay, buy stuff from me, not just this year, but next year and next year and so forth. So if it's through cash, right, I'm going to keep getting this every year. But if I've made high profits one year because I've just changed my accounting assumptions, that's something which is not going to recur. I can't keep changing my assumptions every single year. And so that's why in the future... Right, companies that generated high earnings in one year due to changing their accounting assumptions, they typically had low earnings in the future why this was not something that they were able to repeat. Okay, so what the bottom line is here is that the market is underreacting to accruals, right, how much profit was due to assumptions because they weren't salient, and then, remember, the flip side to underreaction is you're overreacting to something else, and what they're overreacting to is profits, not figuring out where those profits came from. And what's really interesting here is that we can take that last point, and this hope opens up a whole Pandora's box of really interesting studies. If we recognise that the market overreacts to profits, they take them at face value without figuring out where they came from, well, there's lots of other tricks that CEOs can make in order to boost their profits, not just accruals. And one of them is indeed, well, you could change your investments. So what this study looks at is companies that increase their earnings, not just due to accruals, but cutting research and development and cutting advertising. 
Right? Those were easy things for a CEO to cut if she wants to boost her earnings. But again, at the end of the year, when you announce your earnings to the market, to say my earnings increase by 20%, often people ignore how did that increase happen. And so what this study looks at is false beaters. So what do I mean by false beaters, and what are they indeed beating? Well, you might remember from last lecture that before every earnings announcement that a company makes, equity analysts like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, they predict what they think the earnings will be. And so if you beat those earnings expectations, the market typically goes up because it's seen to be a good sign. But a false beta, that is a company that beats the analyst's expectations due to some of that trickery. And they contrast it with honest misses. So these are companies that do miss the forecast, but they miss it not due to being incompetent. They miss it due to high research and development, or high advertising, or low accruals. And so what the study found was that in the short term, false beaters outperformed honest misses by 2 to 4%. Right, so the market just fixated on the earnings announcement, not figuring out where did this come from. But in the long term, these tricks really hurt. So what they found is they underperformed by 15 to 41% over the next three years. So that's something which is huge, right? Companies that played the tricks to beat the earnings target, yeah, they fooled the market for a short time, but afterwards they tanked. And so if we are a savvy investor, what we want to do is not take earnings at face value, but figure out, well, where they came from. So the broader topic that we're looking at is the market doesn't fully react to non-salient information, which might be hidden. Now, as I mentioned, right, that could open up a whole Pandora's box. I could probably spend six hours telling you of various types of information that is hidden. But unfortunately, I only have one hour. Well, now I've only have 40, 40 minutes. Um, so let me focus just on two particular types of non-salient information that the market ignores. And I've chosen the two because I think these are not only just relevant, but I also think they're of interest, even for those of us who might be outside finance and economics. And so the first is signals of the CEO's private information. And the second is intangible assets. So what do I mean by signals of a CEO's private information? Well, a CEO of a company probably knows more about her company than anybody, right? Because she works for the company every day. She knows how well the profits are going to be. She knows the progress of research and development. She knows competitive threats. She knows how well the workers are being treated. And what we'd like to do as an outside investor is figure out what's in the CEO's mind. Right, because if the CEO knows her company's really good, we'd like to buy shares. And if we know that the CEO is actually quite sceptical about her company's outlook, we'd like to sell shares. But the problem is, is that it's really hard to read the CEO's mind, right? So CEOs often will make statements about the company, but those statements may well be biased. So they might say, oh, yeah, we're in a pandemic, but don't worry, right? I've got strong relationships with customers. We've got quite a flexible cost base. And this is something where, um, again, we can't take it at face value. So instead, what some authors did 
was they did something really clever. So rather than looking at what the CEO says, which could indeed be manipulated, they looked at some telltale signs of how the CEO actually acts, because those actions may reflect what the CEO truly believes, even though she might not realise it, so she might not realise she's actually giving some information away with this. And so this is a great study by Yuanji Li and David Yermak, looked at where the company holds its annual general meetings. So every year, a company holds an annual general meeting, and so this is one to which all shareholders are appointed, and there's some important decisions which are made. You elect the board of directors, you vote on other important corporate decisions, such as executive pay. And at the end, there's an open question time where shareholders can get up and ask the CEO particular questions. Now, what is a CEO's ideal AGM? It's one that looks like this, right? You hope that nobody asks any questions, right? There's only one person who just comes for the canapes and champagne, and so you're not having to face difficult questions by the audience. But unfortunately, that's not what always takes place. It's not ideal as that. And sometimes these AGMs can be a magnet for some actual uh, quite um, outrage. For example, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, this is a wanted poster saying that he's wanted for bribery, fraud, and extortion. That was outside one of their AGMs. And similarly for GE, General Electric, there was a picket asking them to pay their fair share. Now, this was outside the AGM. Well, because maybe these people weren't shareholders, so they couldn't actually get into the meeting. But what about inside the meeting itself? You can still have some embarrassment. So there was a nine-year-old girl who came to the McDonald's shareholder meeting and asked the CEO, Don Thompson, it would be nice if you stopped trying to trick kids into wanting to eat your food all the time. And that led to significant negative publicity for McDonald's, right, because the very customer base that they were accused of trying to trick was actually recognising this and saying, well, we actually don't want to have um, what they saw as junk food. So these can be quite tricky meetings. Now, if you're a CEO, do you mind having tricky questions? Well, if you know that your company is truly strong, you don't mind what questions you, you, you get. You actually don't mind being asked tricky questions because it might be that some investors have some misunderstanding about the company. They think maybe your competitive position is weak. You're very happy for them to ask you those questions, right? Because you like a chance to, to set the record straight. But if you truly know that there's skeletons in the cupboard, you don't want to have to put up with those questions. Why? Because you know that you don't have good answers. You might be exposed. Now, if you're a CEO and you don't want those questions, how do you get around it? Because you have to hold the annual general meeting. It's something that happens by law. Well, here's the cunning thing. You could choose to locate it in as inconvenient a location as possible. So here's an example, Lockheed Martin, right? So this is a letter, dear fellow stockholders, on behalf of the board, we would like to invite you to attend our annual meeting. We'd like you to attend so much that even though we're headquartered in Bethesda, Maryland, we're going to hold it in Huntsville, Alabama. 
So if you also are based in Bethesda, you're going to have to drive 598 miles just to come to my meeting and ask me some questions. Now, that's clearly costly for the CEO. He or she would rather have the meeting close to the headquarters. So the only way that he's going to be willing to bear the cost of going 600 miles for the meeting is if he's worried about some questions from some shareholders. And so this is really clever. So we can use this as a sign of the CEO having some negative information. And so this is something which is non-salient, right? even for the biggest companies in the world, like Facebook and Apple. We know who the CEO is, but we don't know where the shareholder meeting is. Now, you might think this example here of 600 miles away, that seems pretty outrageous, but it's actually not the worst thing. Right? So let's look at this company, TRW Automotive. Right, so they are based in Detroit, Michigan. Where do you think they held their meeting? Well, if it was New York, probably not too bad because at least you can fly there. If it was, let's say, California, if it's Los Angeles, yeah, it's far, but you could fly. But they chose to hold it here. Right, you could not get more south than this. They chose to hold it in McAllen, Texas, which is the southernmost tip of the continental United States. Right, so in order to get you'd have to fly to Houston, which is the nearest airport, and then drive for another 400 miles, right, because then there's no airport close to McAllen, Texas. So again, why would the CEO want to do this? It might be because he's worried about being asked some certain questions. And it might be that you don't just hold a meeting in a strange location, um, in, in, in a far location. You might just hold it in an unusual location. So here is an example of Key Corp located in Cleveland. Where do they hold their meeting? Every year in Cleveland. Except for one year, they chose to hold it in Portland, Maine, in an art museum. So why in that year did they want to escape from Cleveland? Well, maybe there's particular issues. And all of these places are when you're in the United States, but there was a, a company that chose to hold its meeting in Lahore, Pakistan, during the time of terrorist threat. So if you were a shareholder and you really wanted to hold asked questions, you had to put your personal safety at risk in order to do that. Okay, so everything I said might sound sort of funny and it seems cunning and devious, but let's look at the serious stuff, which is, well, what does it actually mean for the company's future performance? So if we have these exceptional meetings, those are the one-time deviations from Cleveland to um, Portland, Right, what they found was that the average shareholder returns over the next year was minus 11.7%. So that is massive. That is a sign of a significant amount of future underperformance. Remote meetings was about minus 7% over the next year. And also the further you are from headquarters or the further you were from a major airport, that also leads to significant negative returns. And then we can drill down a little bit more and ask, well, when are those negative returns particularly arising? And again, goes back to the idea of looking at future earnings announcements. Right? Because on average, when a company announces its earnings, the stock price goes up by about 0.4%, because as mentioned earlier, companies do tricks in order to just beat the earnings announcements. However, if these were companies that had held an exceptional meeting, 
those are the one-time deviations, right, they suffered a loss of 2.24%. So the idea here is that if a company holds its meeting in a remote location, it's got skeletons in the cupboard, and then later on, it later announces weak earnings that are lower than what the market predicted. And so what this means is that we can use things such as the location of the meeting to try to figure out the CEO's true beliefs about their company. Okay, so again, this is a paper by Yuan Li and David Yermak, and a, a big thank you to Professor David Yermak of NYU Stern for providing me with, with some of these graphics. But the location of meetings is not the only way in which CEOs can be devious. Well, here's another thing that you can do. So in addition to the physical meeting, as I mentioned, well, every quarter, companies in the United States will announce their earnings. And those earnings announcements are often uh, accompanied by earnings calls, where investors and equity analysts, like the Morgan Stanleys and the Goldman Sachses, can call in to listen to the CEO who explains the earnings. So they might say, ah, the stock, the earnings went up because of high profits and low costs. However, we were worried about conditions in, the, um, in Europe, and so that's why they didn't go up by as much as we would hoped. But they also will ask some questions at the end. Now, the important thing here is that it's the CEO's choice to, on who to ask in terms of the questions. So if you want to ask a question, you indicate this, but the CEO doesn't need to call on you. Right? She can call on whoever she wants. And the interesting thing is with these analysts like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, you know who is positive and you know who is negative. Why? because these analysts write reports, and they will say, well, I think GE is a buy. And then another analyst might have written a report saying, I think GE is a sell. So who do you want to call on if you're the CEO? Well, if you know that your company is truly robust, you might actually prefer to call on the negative analyst. Right? You'd like to give him an opportunity to ask his question, and then you could address his issues, and then maybe next time, he will say you're a buy rather than a sell. There's no benefit in, in answering the questions of somebody who's already positive because he's already positive. However, what was found was that there were some companies that strategically called on the optimistic analysts. So what they had was the list of all the analysts who had dialed into the call, who they could have called on. And then they found that the ones who selectively called on the optimistic analysts, those are companies that underperformed the market by a massive amount. This was 18 percentage points per year, one of the largest out of all of the trading strategies that I'm going to show you today. Now, again, we, we can look at what happens in the future earnings announcements. So what was found was those companies that selectively called on the optimistic people in the next three months, and the three months after that, they typically announced lower earnings than what analysts were predicting. So they wanted to try to keep up the hype and avoid difficult questions. Why? Because they knew that they didn't have any good answers. Now, again, you might be skeptical here. You might think, well, if a firm is calling on just the optimistic analysts, well, maybe there's no strategic behavior here. Maybe it was only the optimistic analysts who are asking questions, right? Because you know who attended, but you don't know who put their hand up 
and asked a question, right? That's not in the transcript. All that's in the transcript is who showed up and what questions were asked. So what the authors did was something like really clever. They looked through the transcript and they looked at the calls with phrases such as, there are no more questions in the queue at the end of the transcript. So if that, word, those, that phrase was there, that meant there was no possibility for strategic behavior. Well, you could only be strategic if there were 30 questions and only time for 10. You'd obviously choose the 10 most optimistic ones. But if you asked all the questions that were there, there was no possibility of playing favorites. And what they found was that in those cases, there were no negative returns at all. And that was a paper by Lauren Cohen, Dong Lu, and Chris Malloy of Harvard Business School and London School of Economics. Now, um, Lauren Cohen and Chris Malloy, again with, a, with another um, co-author, Lucas Pomorski, they looked at another way in which you could try to um, find out what information the CEO truly has. And this might seem to be the most obvious information, which is, well, look at what happens when the CEO chooses to sell her own shares. Right, CEOs have a lot of shares in their company, and, well, when she chooses to sell her shares, maybe this is a sign that she thinks that the company is overvalued or that prospects are bad. So why can't we, as outside investors, follow the leader and copy what the CEO does? So when she gets out, you decide to also sell your shares. You might think, well, why didn't I lead with this? Right? That seems to be an even easier thing to look at than looking at the analyst calls, going through the transcripts, and figuring out, well, who was called on and who was not, or even looking the, at the location of a shareholder meeting. Well, the reason why I didn't start with this, even though it might seem so obvious, is that it just doesn't work. Right? So if you were just to sell your shares after the CEO sells her shares, you earn some returns, but it's really small. It's not like the large figures that I showed you over the last uh, couple of studies. But what these authors did was something clever. Well, they realized, well, when CEOs sell, they might sell for two reasons. Sometimes they might just sell for innocent reasons. They might sell just because they need to finance their children's education, or maybe they want to buy a house, or just for general living expenses. And so what they realized was that there were two types of sales. One of these sales were routine. So it might be that every February, the CEO just chooses to cash out some equity, maybe because she does her planning every February, maybe that's when her birthday is or something. Or maybe that's when her equity is given, or maybe that's when pay is negotiated. But then there's other times where you might sell in a particular month when you don't normally sell. And so what they did is they broke down the trades into what they said routine trades, where you're selling in the same month every year, and opportunistic trades, and those were like out-of-cycle trades. So you don't normally sell in a particular month, but you do this suddenly. So what they found was something really clever and interesting, right? So if you were to mimic the routine trades, so sell when the CEO sells, you actually lose money, right? You're losing 2.4% per year because you're trading on a false signal, right? That CEO selling isn't a sign that the company's going to do badly because the CEO just sells in that same month and every year anyway. But if you focus on selling 
when the CEO sells out of cycle, unusually, then you make nearly 10 percentage points per year. Okay, so that will conclude my section on the CEO's private information. So let me just wrap up, because I know I've shown you a lot of studies. Right, so CEOs know more about their company than anybody else knows. And so you'd like to figure out, well, what does she truly think about her company? And you can think of, look at this by where she holds her shelter meetings, who she calls upon in these analyst calls, and her own trades, but recognize that some trades are routine and we don't want to follow them. We want to follow the out-of-cycle opportunistic one. So this takes me to the second category of studies um, that I'm going to go through, which looks at intangible assets. So what do I mean by intangible assets? Well, let me contrast them with tangible assets. So tangible assets are things that a company owns which you can touch. So it could be machines, it could be factories, it could be that the land that they own, it could be the mines of the mining company. Right? Those things are visible. And they're going to be particularly salient, right, because investors might react to them. You know that a company owns these massive uh, buildings or properties. But we also have intangible assets, and those are worth something, but we can't really see that. So if indeed we have a really uh, loyal employee base where workers are extremely vibrant and innovative and they're willing to go above and beyond the call of duty rather than just doing what is in the contract, that is clearly an asset, right? Because if a company has a skilled and motivated workforce, that's going to increase its profitability and success. But we often can't see it. And then going back to the very first example that I mentioned today, right? if you've got satisfied employees, that is often less visible than something like profits. And so because these things are not so visible, it may well be that the market ignores them. So let's take one type of um, uh, asset, which is investment. So there's two categories, broadly speaking, of investment. One of them is investment in tangible assets called capital expenditure. And so that's when I buy a machine or a factory. And other types of investment is research and development. So it might be that as a company, we're trying to research a new coronavirus cure. And it's really difficult for outsiders to figure out, well, how well your research effects, your research efforts are going, right? Because until you've actually produced a potential prototype for a vaccine or, 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 or whatever, you can't really see this. And so what, um, because this is something that people can't really notice, then maybe the market underreacts to companies that are spending a lot on research and development. So there was a little early study in 2001 which looked at a really simple trading strategy, which is if we buy companies which have high research and development compared to their market value and sell companies which have low research development, we beat the market by 6.1% per year. So why is this? Well, if a company is spending a lot on research, it reduces its profits. And as we've established, the market focuses too much on profits. But the, and the company hasn't got anything to show for it. Right? If your profits are low because you've got massive buildings, right, indeed, people can say, oh, that's why, indeed, they don't have that high cash flow. But if your profits are low because you've spent money on research, 
Well, people don't realize this. They might think, well, your profits are low just because you're an incompetent manager. And so because the market undervalues research, that's why you can make 6% per year. But that was 20 years ago. And you might think, well, hasn't the market got more sophisticated since then? Right? Now we recognize that actually companies do spend a lot of money on research, particularly in 2020. This is one of the biggest expenditures that some companies have. So it clearly can't be the case that you can just think that the market completely ignores research expenditure. So this study, which came out 12 years later, was more sophisticated than that. Right, so they didn't just look at the level of research and development, because that's something now the market is cottoning onto, but they looked at, well, how well you're spending, because there's some companies that spend it really well, they get loads of results out of quite little, and there's others that are wasteful. And what turns out is that your ability to engage in R&D is something persistent. So if a company five years ago spent a little bit on R&D and got lots of bang for buck, it still gets lots of bang for buck this year. So it's not that spending on research is just like a coin flip. It's not that some years you get lucky and some years you don't. It's a skill. So there's some companies which are really skilled at identifying the best research opportunities. And there's some companies which are really bad and just throw good money after bad and spend money in a very indisciplined way. So what these researchers found was, yes, there is indeed a way of figuring out how skilled a company is in investing, because you can look at their past record. But they said, well, the market ignores that because the market only looks at the level of spending and not the actual quality. So what they did is they took two firms that spend exactly the same level in research and development. So it's not like the first study, we looked at some companies which spent a lot, which spent a lot and some that spent a little. Here, both companies spent exactly the same. But if you take one company with a great track record of spending and another company with a poor track record of spending, and you bought the one with a good track record, and you sold the one with a bad record, you earned 11% per year. So this is really interesting. And what's the interpretation? What are we learning from this? Is, yeah, now the market is recognizing, let's look at the amount of expenditure that a company makes on research and development. So the market is recognizing that, but they're not focusing on the quality of that expenditure, whether you have in the past managed to generate something with your research. And just stepping away from, 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 from this into sort of some broader debate, right now we have this debate as to uh, whether companies that are short-termists and whether they spend a lot on research, but the newspapers and politicians, all they look at is the level of spending. They're saying, well, this company's not investing a lot, but that is not a valid criticism sometimes because there's some companies which don't invest much but they get lots out of that expenditure. And indeed, the fact that politicians and the media focus too much on the level of spending rather than what you get out of it is actually fully consistent with what this study is finding in terms of the market and investors. They're looking at the level of spending, but actually not the quality. A couple of other intangible assets we can think of. And so this is one which is on corporate governance. So what does that mean? Well, this means 
how well a, a CEO is performing in terms of acting in the interests of shareholders. So there are some CEOs who can just uh, spend the company's money for their own benefit. They could overpay themselves. They could engage in massive acquisitions. They could um, just not rein in expenditure and um, just not be disciplined generally. Now, there's various things that companies can put in place in order to prevent the CEO from doing that, right? So, um, so what we can have is lots of inv allow investors to come in and take over the company or to kick out the CEO if indeed he's misbehaving. But companies can react to that and companies can say, well, let me put in a golden parachute. So what does that mean? It means that if investors were to kick out the CEO, he would get a huge amount of severance pay and redundancy. So if that is the case, right, then indeed um, you might not care about whether you're performing well or not, because even if you get fired, you're going to get a huge payoff. So what this very famous study looked at is they took companies that are well-governed, where there's nothing really to protect the CEO from being kicked out for poor performance. And then there's companies which are badly governed. And here, there's a lot of protection mechanisms, such as the golden parachute, which do protect the CEO if indeed he's kicked out for poor performance. And so what they found was that well-governed firms beat poorly governed firms by 8.5% per year over an eight-year period. And again, this is very striking, right? Because it makes a lot of sense that we'd like to buy companies where the CEO is accountable for performance, but this is not really something tangible. What we can't see how accountable a CEO is. It's not like a machine or a factory, so many investors, at least until recently, tended to ignore it. And let me give a particularly egregious example of poor corporate governance. It is this. It is a corporate jet. So perhaps one of the main things, a way a CEO can actually benefit himself at the expense of the firm is by just flying around in a corporate jet. It can be sometimes be a sign of corporate excess. And one of the most egregious examples is um, RJR Nabisco. So you might know about this company from the book or the movie Barbarians at the Gate. Right there, they had 10 private jets and 36 pilots. And these were housed in a hangar containing $600,000 of furniture and $250,000 of landscaping. Right, so here, the CEO had wasted the company's money on just these planes and the hangar and the landscaping. And, well, this didn't ferry the CEO to meetings because there's no problem if you're using the jet so that the CEO arrives at a meeting and can negotiate really fresh and alert. But instead, this flew the CEO to golf tournaments as well as some passengers. And one of the passengers was G. Shepherd. This was the dog, right? The German Shepherd was being flown by the, the corporate jet. So clearly, this is a huge misuse of company money. And so what a study did was it looked at, well, what happens when companies disclose the usage of a corporate jet? And what was found was that they underperform by four percentage points per year, and that is about $300 million per year. So this was by the same David Yermak who looked at the location of shareholder meetings. But here's the thing that I think is, is really interesting. Right, so number one, 
the disclosure of the corporate jet is public information. Like companies have to release in the annual report any usage of corporate jet which costs more than $50,000 in terms of just even renting a jet for a couple of days. So investors can look at this, but they were just ignoring it because maybe it's not as salient as something like profits. But also, what's interesting is the magnitude, because, well, if indeed the cost of the jet rental is only $50,000, why is it that the market falls by $300 million? Right? Is, is the market overreacting here? Well, I think the answer is no, right? because what the investors are realizing is this is the tip of the iceberg. Right? So a company which uses the corporate jet, might be allowing the CEO to get away with loads of other things. So maybe the CEO is overpaying himself, maybe engaging a lot of bad acquisitions, maybe not working hard to improve the company's competitive positioning. So I thought this was a very clever study because, again, it uses one visible sign, the corporate jet, to highlight general problems within the company. Okay, so you might think, well, so far I've looked at some negative sides, right, which is corporate jets and golden parachutes, but what about positive intangible assets? So I've looked at some investments in the form of research and development, but there's sometimes, there's some ways in which you can create intangible assets even without spending money. So let's say you're just a great people manager, but you make your employees feel really valued, you delegate to them, you give them a lot of autonomy rather than micromanagement, and you create a great place to work. Right, that is clearly an asset, and you can't even see the company spending on it because it's not something where there's an item in the income statement saying I've spent money on my employees. And so this is something that I looked at in my own, one of my own studies, which looked at a measure of how well a company treats its employees. So this was, is an intangible asset, right? It's how strong corporate culture is, but it's something which is quite difficult to see. You can't see it in the same way that you can see a factory. So what I looked at in this study was the list of the 100 best companies to work for in America. So this was a list that's published every year in Fortune magazine, but it's not compiled by Fortune, because then you might be worried that actually Fortune is just giving you a high ranking if you're advertising a lot with them. So instead, this list is devised by an institution in California called the Great Place to Work Institute, and they undergo a significant and rigorous assessment of their company's corporate culture. They interview, they, they survey 250 employees at all levels, asking them 57 very specific questions. And so what I wanted to do in this study is to look at are companies that have strong employee satisfaction, do they beat the market? Or are they just fluffy companies distracted from the bottom line? Now, as we know, like correlation does not imply causation. You might worry well, that Google is on this list. Google's done really well, but maybe that's nothing to do with employee satisfaction. I do a lot of stuff in the paper to try to suggest that it is employee satisfaction that leads to better performance rather than better performance allowing a company to spend an employee satisfaction. But I'm not going to bore you with that. Instead, what I want to do is to focus on the bottom line. And the bottom line that I found was that the 100 best companies to work for in America delivered stock returns 
that beat their peers by 2.3 to 3.8% per year over a 28-year period, and that's 89 to 184% compounded. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, well, I have to give a big thank you to you, because this was something that I mentioned, I believe, in my very first ever Gresham College lecture two years ago when I was talking about purposeful business. But in that lecture, I highlighted the implications of this result for the fact that serving society ultimately helps shareholders. Today, I'm going to mention this paper in a very different light. I'd like to talk about what it means for hidden investment opportunities and the psychology of the stock market, because that's the topic of this year's lecture series. So what's really interesting about this best company study, unlike any of the other papers that I have covered today, is that this is something which is really salient. Well, it's not that you need to look up in the footnotes of a company's annual report and figure out, do they use a corporate jet? It's not that you have to figure out where the shareholder meeting is, and if you did that, you might have to do that for 100 companies by looking at all of their locations separately. And it's not that you have to pour through a transcript of an analyst's call and figure out which analysts ask questions and whether they're pessimistic or optimistic before. Right here, just by taking one copy of this magazine, you've got all 100 companies on this list in one go. So this is something where the market should be taking it into account and, and doesn't this seem to contradict how I started my talk as I said, well, the market should react to salient information, but not non-salient information. But this is clearly salient. It's in, in a very famous magazine. So why is the market underreacting if it's so salient? Well, what I want to do is I want to move beyond salience now in my final few minutes and say that the, the thing that matters is not only whether information is salient, which is easily accessible, but also whether it's tangible or intangible. So if something is salient and tangible, we can touch it or see it, right? The company has now built a new factory, then the market knows, well, this is great news. Let's take this into account. But if something is salient but intangible, the market might ignore it. Why? Well, it's hard to assess what do I mean by that? Well, you see that the company has satisfied employees, but, but you don't know whether it's good, right? You could also have satisfied employees if you're not working them hard enough, if you're spending too much on wages, uh, and if, if you've just got a pretty lax corporate culture and you're tolerating underperformance. So unlike building a new factory where you know that that's good for the company, having satisfied employees, well, some investors are not sure. Is this good or not? And the second point is it's hard to process, right? So even if I know that the company has a satisfied workforce and they know that it's really good, well, how do we change C cell C23 in my valuation model to account for the fact that the company has satisfied employees? Right, for a factory, I know how much that's worth. I can predict how many widgets the factory will produce and how much I can sell them for. But if I have happier employees, does that mean that my profits will be 5% higher, 10% higher, 15% higher? I really don't know. And indeed, what I found in, in the study, and this is what I didn't mention in my last Gresham lecture, 
is that there's further pieces of evidence suggesting that the market was really not getting it. So the list was available from 1984 to 2011, and in the latter period, it was updated every single year. But I looked at the most naive strategy of what would happen if you bought the 1984 list and then you fell asleep for 28 years, and then you woke up after 28 years, you would have still beaten the market. Right? So this means that the market is so slow to react to the information that even 28-year-old data might still be useful because if you bought the list in 1984, companies which have high employee satisfaction in 1984, it's typically persistent and permanent. It's part of the culture. They probably still have high employee satisfaction in 2011, but the market, it just takes so long to cotton on to this that uh, maybe they're not fully responding. So on average, what I found is it takes the market four to five years before it fully takes into account the level of a company's employee satisfaction. And you might also remember, right, from, other, from my um, first Gresham lecture two years ago, that there were other dimensions of performance that are also linked to long-term returns. So how well a company treats its customers, how well a company serves the environment, and also how well a company performs according to its material stakeholders. So what I mean by this is what are the stakeholders that are most important to you? So if you're in healthcare, maybe it's the environment, right? you have a big environmental impact, but maybe for financials, it's customer trust because trust is something which is not always there for banks. Now again, all of this data right, is really publicly available, but the market is not ignoring it, the market is ignoring it. Why? Because these things are hard to assess. If a company is caring about the environment, maybe it's a tree-huggy company rather than a hard-hearted, profit-focused company. And it's hard to process, right? Because even if we know that an environmental record is important for a company's image, we don't know how important it is, how much the expected profits are rising. And so back to today's main focus, right, these things are hidden investment opportunities because these things matter for a company's value, but these are things that the market might not be fully taken into account. And just before the questions, right, um, as some of you might know, I wrote up my first Gresham College lecture series into this book called Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit, which summarizes a lot of the academic papers we came across today, which show that there's many factors which affect a company's performance, but might not be fully taken into account by the market. Why? Because it's either non-salient information or it's intangible information, and that presents hidden opportunities for the rest of us. Great. Well, thank you so much to everybody for, for the attention. So I'm going to turn to Lucia now for the Q&A. Professor Edmonds, this is a fascinating lecture. We've got quite a few questions. Okay. Um, first one we've got here is, how about pecking order theories? Are there any particular actions of the CEOs concerning changes in financials, such as the way capital is raised, that produce tradable insights? Great, thank you. And so let me explain what it means by pecking order theory to begin with. So this is the idea that when a company chooses to raise money, if it's choosing to raise money by selling shares on the stock market, right, that is a sign that maybe the stock price is, is too high. Whereas if you chose to raise money by raising debt, by borrowing from the bank, 
that's not a sign that you are overvalued. So indeed, the question is correct. Typically, when companies were issuing equity, they're selling shares, the market reacts negatively because the market thinks, well, why has the CEO chosen to sell shares rather than borrow from the bank? It must be that she thinks that her shares are overvalued, and so the market realises this and the stock price goes down. Great. Um, so, so the second question is, what about online AGMs during COVID? And I think the questioner is referring to how CEOs can be evasive for, uh, when, they were, when they're holding their AGMs online. Yes. Thanks for that. So, so uh, the move to, to online AGMs means it's not so easy now to hold them in Lahore, Pakistan or McAllen, Texas. So I think here you could still be evasive in a couple of ways. So number one is you could hold the AGM either in an inconvenient time, so maybe at Friday afternoon, or you could hold it at the time in which you know other companies are holding the online AGM, so an investor might have to choose between them. And you could also choose to be evasive in terms of the questions that you answer at the end. So there is still this question time. And it might be that companies have this filter mechanism where you have to put your question in and they call out the question. And there's maybe other companies where you just indicate by putting your hand up if you have a question. And if you're willing to call on those people blind before you know what the question is, that's a sign that you have some confidence. Um, the questioner here asks, how can you determine if the CEO is selling her shares? Yeah, so what they have to do is they need to report this in a, a, a filing. So in the United States, where a lot of this data is, it's known as Form 4. So because CEOs are insiders, right, that you need to make sure that their sales are transparent so that any information has going to, gone to the market. So there are these Form 4 filings, which is what those studies were based on, in order to figure out when the CEO has sold. And actually, even within the, the UK, there are often a newspaper columnist who will try to look at, um, who will try to gather all of this information in one place and say, oh, look at what's happened here. These CEOs have bought, these CEOs have sold. So I think Investors Chronicle, which is an investing magazine in the UK, that typically has a column which tracks what, uh, invest, what CEOs are doing with their own equity. Um, and this is a bit of a cheeky question, but I'll ask you and you can choose whether sure. or not to answer. It says, how much has the lecturer made from them is the key question. Yeah, so, well, one of them I can say is my, my um, um, study on employee satisfaction. Right, that, this is something which an actual fund is put into practice. So this is known as the Parnassus Endeavour Fund. Um, so it used to be known as the Parnassus Workplace Fund, which is something which invests in companies with strong workplaces. They only just changed the name because they added some fossil fuel exclusions to that. But that I've been an investor in since 2007. Um, I'm not going to tell you how much money I've made, but you can look at what the performance of that fund has been over the last 13 years. Indeed, Morningstar did a study of funds in 2016. And they found that this fund was the best performing out of all funds, not only over the past one year, but over the past one, two, five, and ten years. So I think that's important because sometimes you, you, you don't want to go to a restaurant or where the chef doesn't eat his or her own cooking. But here, this was something which was related to my research. And because I truly believe in the study, here, this is the main investment that I have is in that fund. Final question you have here, I think you've already answered, but I'll just put it to you again in case you feel not to your satisfaction. It asks, what is an accrual? Okay, absolutely. So an accrual is when you are claiming that you've made profits, but those profits are not backed up by cash. So normally, profits and cash are the same thing. Right? So if you go to the shop, you buy some, a newspaper, you give some money, and so they've got cash, and they've also made a profit. But sometimes you can have made money 
even if you haven't yet received cash. So if I do some work, let's say I'm a lawyer and I do some work for you, if I've done that work and not yet billed you, I've still made some money because I've done the work and I'm owed some money at the end. Now, what the accrual is, is, well, how much money do I claim to have made? So if I've done one hour of work and I've earned £200 per hour, I could claim I've made £200, I've not billed you, but I've got the right to bill you later. But maybe you might think, well, I'm only going to book £150 because maybe there's a possibility that my client doesn't pay me because they might go bust. And so what the accrual is, is the difference between your reported profit, how much you claim to have made, and the cash that you've actually received. And because there's a discretion on how much you can claim to have booked, that's where it leads to the possibility of companies using accruals in order to increase their reported earnings. Thank you again, Professor Edmonds, and thank you all for coming. We hope you enjoyed the lecture. We'll be sending you a link to the video and transcript in a couple of days' time. Um, the next lecture by Professor Edmonds is called The Mistakes Investors Make. It's on Tuesday, the 8th of December, 6 o'clock. Um, please sign up. Thank you. Thank you very much to, again to everybody for tuning in. I look forward to seeing some of you in December for The Mistakes Investors Make. We're going to look further in terms of investor psychology, and this is going to look at common mistakes investors make that you might be making in your portfolio. I know that I do myself sometimes, and look at how we can address this. And so again, hopefully this is something practically useful in terms of our own financial security and savings.